This is Nancy Armour, host of Extra Point, a USA Today sports podcast. We don't do this very often, but there is another podcast on going for gold uh, that has touches on a couple of issues that we think fit really well with Extra Point and thought that you should give it a listen. It's um, I talked with Rachel Axon, our Olympics reporter and part of our investigative team on all of the doping issues that are going on with surrounding the Russian track athletes, the Russian Federation in general, ahead of the Rio Olympics. There are some big decisions coming up this week, and Rachel gives a very good breakdown of all of the issues and, and what's going on, what's going to go on, and, and what can happen from here. And we think it's worth a listen, so here you go. This is a big week for Russian track and field athletes, the entire Russian team, actually. The big decision comes Friday when the International Association of Athletic Federations, also known as the IAAF, announces whether it's going to lift the ban that currently would prevent Russian track athletes from competing in Rio. That ban was imposed after an independent investigation found evidence of widespread doping by Russia's track and field athletes. In the meantime, the International Olympic Committee is considering whether the entire Russian delegation should be banned. That comes after allegations of a state-sponsored doping program at the Sochi Olympics, including that their own anti-doping officials tampered with samples to protect Russian athletes. So, Rachel, I guess the first question is, how likely is a ban of any Russian athletes in Rio? That's a that's a tough one. And if anyone had that crystal ball, they'd probably be uh, taking good odds right now because nobody really knows. I will say, you know, obviously our perspective comes only from living in the United States and having the uh, perspective of kind of the Western media or the sources that we have here. And they are largely against uh, the Russian track and field team being allowed to compete. Uh, Travis Tigert, who is the head of USADA, uh, the U.S.'s anti-doping agency, has been very vocal in this since the Independent Commission report was released in November that, uh, you know, it'll be about eight, nine months since that, that that's not really enough time to make uh, substantial changes. And uh, beyond that, you know, shouldn't there be some sort of meaningful sanction for running the type of widespread doping that's been revealed in the reports? We saw this week uh, the head of the German Track and Field Federation saying the same thing about Russia and Kenya, which is having not quite the same doping issues, but having doping issues. Um, so there is a lot of support of banning uh, Russian track and field, definitely, and, and some support for banning Russia entirely as a country from Rio. So in the in the last couple of weeks, we've heard about retests of the samples from London and Beijing. And I think it was, what, 31 athletes from uh, Beijing tested positive and 24 from London. Mm-hmm. Um, what did those show? And did is that also playing into this call for Rus- the Russians to be banned from Rio, whether it's just the track and field team or the whole delegation together? Well, it's certainly not helping. <laughs> As you mentioned, uh, the retesting so far has revealed 55 total positives. The Russian Sports Ministry uh, or Olympic Committee has come forward and said that 22 of those are are Russians. Inc- they do include medalists. Um, they haven't named people, but we saw this week Vitaly Mutko, who's the um, Russian sports minister, came out and basically said all the retesting should be thrown out because two of their athletes who had tested positive uh, were cleared by their B samples. For people who don't know, when they collect these samples, there's an A sample and B sample, uh, which if the first one comes back positive for any sort of um, adverse finding, you know, they'll they'll go test the other one too either confirm it or refute it. Uh, I think that was met by much kind of skepticism and many rolled eyes. I was going to say, because that's, and that's kind of a smokescreen, isn't it? Because there are, there have been examples where somebody has tested positive with their A sample, but then their B sample hasn't tested positive and it had nothing to do with tampering. 
Yes. And I, I think kind of at the point, uh, I hesitate here because I do think there's kind of, I don't want to say like lingering Cold War attitudes, but, yeah. you know, Russia is not an American ally. And, uh, you know, American fans or people who watch sports aren't inclined to kind of cut them any slack. But I think when you look at the just repeated number of allegations, where they're coming from, in the case of the Independent Commission, you know, that's been verified. That's a conclusion of the governing body. So to to, to just have more pile on, you know, we've seen a lot with Meldonium, which is its own issue about whether or not it should have been banned. But there's certainly a, a belief of, uh, I think, just generally, you know, you've lost the benefit of the doubt. And so having more positives from the Olympic testing uh, you know, they're saying they're doing it to prevent anybody who would have doped in previous Olympics from competing in Rio. Uh, but their their language on this goes back and forth. Well, and you do bring up a good point that, you know, they're, that the Russians are, are kind of claiming persecution, that they're being singled out. And it's true. You know, every country has their own issues with doping. You know, sure. the U.S. has Justin Gatlin, who was the Olympic champion in 2004 in the 100 meters, served a four-year ban, and then came back and won the bronze medal at the London Olympics um, after, you know, he was busted for testing positive for testosterone or a precursor mm-hmm. to testosterone. So what is the difference? I mean, why... Why do we not get all up in arms about the Justin Gatlins and Marion Joneses of our country, but we do about Russia? Well, I think it goes back to a little bit of what I just said. You know, this isn't a traditional U.S. ally or someone that Americans are prone to like, but um, this is different. Uh, and, and I think that's been made pretty clear by what's been brought forward. You know, everybody kind of lives in a glass house here. I think we all accept Every country has doping. I can promise you right now there are Americans are right that right now that are doping. Whether or not they're being caught, you know, is is a question. But I think the difference uh, here is the breadth of it and that this was a system run by the sports apparatus and the anti-doping apparatus. It looks like within Russia, you know, I've talked a lot and I I know you have as well with um, Max Cobb, who's the CEO of us biathlon and biathlon has been a sport traditionally (laughs) kind of plagued by these issues. And his point has been, and I'm paraphrasing here. So I apologize if he's listening, but you know, if you're talking about doping on a wide, widespread scale where, um, these sports agencies and anti-doping agencies uh, are are involved in the cover-up, where you know they're supporting coaches who are who are giving this, where uh, you know bribes are being paid to cover up positive tests. Show show me where else that's happening. Um, you know the the closest comparison that we can make of this that we know about would be East Germany right. back in the 70s and 80s. And that was obviously you know predates you know WADA and a lot of the changes that we've seen in anti-doping. So in in the current landscape of where we are, yes, there are athletes who dope and they dope from every country. And, and you know, WADA releases a list and it, you know, puts on there how many, you know, uh, there are from each country. But which I will note, Russia led right. <laughs> uh, last year. Um, but this kind of breadth where you have the machinery of, of you know, sport and anti-doping in your country supporting it, as has been alleged and shown throughout here. I mean, that's really why this has been such a big deal. There's also a difference, too, in that it, in in a country like the U.S., the examples that I gave before are Justin Gatlin or Marion Jones. That's their individual choice, that they as an athlete or their coach are making the decision that they're going to dope. It's not that somebody from their government or their Olympic committee is coming to them and saying, here, this is going to right. be your doping schedule, and you need to take this pill on this day and stop taking it on this day so that you don't get caught. 
Well, and I think that's a key concern. Um, I, th- I think we'll probably talk about him in a little bit, but Vitaly Stepanov was one of the whistleblowers in Russia, and he pointed out to me, you know, not only is this unfair to clean athletes worldwide, but this system is really unfair to clean athletes in Russia, right? Because you're either right. pressured into this kind of doping, and if you don't participate, well, then good luck beating a bunch of athletes who are, or you do, because that's the difficult decision, but that's what you need to do, and, and it's kind of accepted. So, um yeah, it's very different in that regard. Or you're shut out completely. You're not given the opportunity to compete exactly. if you don't go along with the program. Exactly. Um, so that brings up another point. Then there's a lot of talk on on both sides, really, You know, whether you want to see Russia banned or not, about not wanting to punish athletes who are clean, the, the ones who haven't. Mm-hmm you know, haven't been involved in this. Um, And there is a special IAAF testing pool that's been instituted since the special investigation. Is that enough to prove that, you know, if they would, if IAAF would decide to ban Russia's track team, is there, has there been enough of this independent testing that you could take the people who haven't tested positive and say, okay, you're clean, you can compete or how, I mean, how would that work or, or would it work? That's a big question. I, I, I'm, I remain skeptical here uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, you know, when the independent commission report came out in November, Rosada got shut down. I mean, they're non-compliant, so they can't do testing. And there was a period of about three-ish months before an agreement was reached with UK anti-doping for them to come in and work with WADA and work with Rosada to be testing their athletes. What we've since found out is that kind of springtime period, I guess October to May-ish, I forget the exact dates, but the, the number of tests that have been done this year relative to last year at the same time period is about a third. So we know there's already far less testing. Right. One would hope that the quality of testing is better, but we don't know that. Uh, the UKAD has reported problems within the country that, you know, I think they had a couple hundred tests and there were about a hundred whereabouts failures, which uh, for people who don't know, athletes are required to state, I'm going to be here because they should be able to be tested at the, you know, drop of a hat anytime right. out of competition. And so that's problematic. I think the IAAF, I mean, there's going to be some skepticism there as as the second part of the independent commission report indicated they were largely implicated in what was going on and top officials at the IAAF were accepting bribes to kind of look the other way on some testing of Russian athletes, allow them to compete or delay their, their proceedings. And as far as we know, those people are gone. Although, you know, there's news this week of, of more people being suspended in an ethics probe. So I think there's going to be that. And the point about clean Russian athletes, I think two things kind of stand out to me there. You know, I talked to Sarah Conrad, who uh, is an American, and she's the head of the USOC Athlete Committee. And when I talked to her, maybe February-ish, you know, she really had sympathy for those clean Russian athletes and said, you know, uh, that's not fair to them. They didn't have noticed that missing an Olympics would be the price if they didn't speak up. Uh, Since then, more allegations have come forward regarding Sochi and the lab director, not only doping athletes, but working with the basically Russian version of the FBI to uh, tamper with samples and replace, you know, dirty ones, known dirty ones with clean ones. And she has said, like, no, like, you know, I'm done. 
uh, I think they should be banned. They don't get the benefit of the doubt. And the point, uh, I think David Howman, who is the outgoing director general of WADA, has made this, uh, I want to say it was an interview with Reuters or the BBC, but I'm, I'm sorry if I'm getting this wrong here. But his point was, you know, where were you speaking up when we were there asking? You know, the WADA Independent Commission went to yeah. Russia. These athletes, you know, many of them were given the opportunity to, uh, you know, also be a whistleblower, also, you know, kind of speak you know, if this is a concern, speak that piece. And I think that the, the wording in the code is, is complicity. So if you, if you are kind of silently witnessing this, but not saying, um, I don't think that there's a lot of sympathy for that. Um, so I think, I think there's less concern about the rights of clean Russian athletes right now, as there is about clean athletes internationally, and then also a lot of logistical questions about how they would even show that they are clean. Well, and there's also some question, too, about, you know, if you do have that period where they had the, the, the kind of the gap in testing, there is some thought that they could have been doped, that athletes there could have doped it up until that point, and oh. that could still carry over, the, the, the benefits could still be carrying over. A hundred percent. This is something, you know, that I mentioned the German track and field federation wrote this letter and, and they basically called it, you know, a doping holiday because, yeah. and, and people will tell you this. I've talked to Travis Tigert about this. I've talked to Nick Willis, who's a, a runner for New Zealand. And their point is, you know, anybody who tests positive at these events, whether it's an Olympic or a world's champions, I mean, this is, they call it an IQ test because you have to be really not bright <laughs> to, to fail those tests, you know, you know, you will be tested. So right. if you're doping and you, you fail there, then, you know, that that's not good. Uh, but because of that, a lot of the gains that people can get are coming when they're doping six months, eight months, nine months prior to an event like that. So that window happens to fall right with the window where Russians were not being tested uh, because they didn't have that agreement in place with UKAD. So I think there's a lot of concern about, you know, even if someone could test clean now, uh, that does not necessarily rule out that they were doping during that time frame when there were, you know, Russian athletes were not being tested. So if we have clean athletes or, or athletes from outside of Russia saying, please do something, you've got the head mm -hmm. of the German track federation doing this. And again, we're looking at this from the prism of outside Russia, but why are the IAAF and IOC so reluctant to take on Russia? I mean, this, this seems like it should be a no brainer. You dope, you pay the consequences. Well, I think there's a couple things here. One, if Russia were to be banned, this would be completely unprecedented in a country um, or, or even a, a sport in a country has not been banned for a sports issue, definitely not for a doping issue. The only kind of precedent that comes close is, you know, Germany around World War One and Two, and then Japan after World War Two were not invited to the Olympics. Those are clearly geopolitical issues related to uh, those wars. So there's no kind of there's no kind of playbook for how this goes if they're banned. Certainly if they are banned, you know, it's going to be challenged. And, uh, you know, I was talking with someone today who said, you know, uh, they, they need to clearly show their reasoning on this. You know, when the IAAF banned uh, the All Russian Athletics Federation, they said, you know, kind of here's the benchmarks of what we're going to be looking for, things that you need to change to be able to do this. Now, there's some debate about whether or not that's happening, and there's definitely mixed signals, at least from what we can read from here coming out of Russia in terms of their tone and how much they're accepting of their culpability here and, and their, their you know, responsibility to change going forward. So 
that's something that, uh, you know, will will come down to the IWF's reasoning on why or why not they're going to continue that ban. And then I think the biggest thing here is this is a very political situation, right? Yeah. This is this is not some small country on an island or something. This is one of the major powers in the world. This is the host of the most recent Olympics, right. the host of the next World Cup. It's very political. And there are about $51 billion reasons <laughs> why the IOC might feel indebted uh, to Russia, which for people who don't know, that's what the Russians spent to host the Sochi Olympics. So yes. um, as much as in a, an idealized world, those things should be, be removed and we should look at you know, judge this on these high-minded ideals of fair play and protecting clean athletes and all these things that clean athletes want these leaders to be doing. I think it's really hard to think that's going to happen in a vacuum. So if there are no consequences, if the IAAF lifts the ban, if the IOC does not do anything, what what message does that send to the rest of the world? Because if we remember, the IAAF ban was not imposed until after last year's World Track and Field Championship. So they've, yes, they have missed some World Cups, um, some Diamond League races, but you know, not either of the, you know, the biggest competitions. Right. So, wh- what message does it send to the rest of the world? I think it's hard, and especially for people who work in this area, they'll tell you it's very hard to see this as anything other than kind of. Um, not permission, but almost tacit permission of this, that, you know what, even if you run afoul of these rules, we're, we're not going to call you on it. There's not the structure in place. And, it, you know, I think I've spoken to people at WADA and that, you know, David Howman has said, you know, we never kind of contemplated some of these things, you know, like the, the FSB coming in and swapping out samples. And it's, you know, even if that's the case, it's a test of how you respond to this. Right. And I think it will be very difficult for clean athletes, for people who work in anti-doping, who are, who you know, kind of the true believers in this movement to see you know, a lack of sanctions is anything other than approve it and, you know, continue to lose confidence in this effort and the agencies who are supposed to be leading it. So is this almost like a, a I don't know, a, a tipping point for both the anti-doping movement and the IOC? I think it's both. I mean, I think the IOC is probably going to get to pass the buck a little bit there just because it's not (laughs) technically their decision right now. You know, right. The only thing that we know for sure that's on the table is um, is Russian track right now, which it's worth pointing out. You know, this is based on the, the previous independent commission report. Uh, but there is another investigation ongoing. I, I think we mentioned, uh, you know, there's the, the former director of the Moscow lab, uh, has since left Russia and is speaking. And he told the New York Times in a story that came out in mid-May, you know, that he's doping athletes, that they were working to swap the urine out. So there's some serious questions about, you know, how, uh, doping played into Russian leading, Russia leading the medal account at the Sochi Olympics. Right. So if, if those come to be supported or, um, if that investigation, which is supposed to be done by July 15th, uh, comes to show that that's accurate, then I think the, the IOC has a bigger issue, right? Because then this that's their ballpark, right? If, right. if they were tampering with things at the Olympics, that, that's their purview. Um, right now, it's on, you know, the track federation. Uh, and and I, I just don't – we don't know what's going to happen there. We don't know – I think they can pass some some responsibility off, but I think everyone's kind of jaded at this point. So it's hard to see how they get out of that 
unless there's some sort of decisive action. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking of, of the, the track investigation, what is the, what's the status of the whistleblowers? As you mentioned, the, the head of the Russian anti-doping agency or the, the doping, anti-doping lab was, has fled Russia. The two whistleblowers, Vitaly and, and Yulia Stepanov, Stepanov, have also fled. So what is, the, what is their status and where are they or do we know? They are somewhere in the United States. So uh, just by way of background, Vitaly Stepanov uh, was a former Rusada employee who, starting in 2010, was emailing WADA with information about this sort of widespread doping. Um, at some point in that process, his wife, Yulia Stepanova, who was a Russian uh, middle distance runner, uh, joins him in this effort. Uh, they they take great risk to provide this information, which they provide it for years to WADA before they uh, basically are told to go <laughs> take it to the media and take it to uh, Hajo Seppel, who's a documentarian. And they, they broadcast this in, uh, in Germany in December 2014. Uh, of course, the Stepanovs have left the country by then for fear of their safety. Uh, and they stayed in Germany for a while, uh, you know, in response to the documentary airing. That's when WADA launched it launched its investigation in January 2015, which coincided with the end of a two-year ban that Yulia Stepanova was serving uh, for uh, for a doping uh, violation. Now, she should have just been able to compete, and she did compete uh, in Russia, or sorry, excuse me, in Germany. Uh, she hit an Olympic qualifying time last June, um, and uh, while certainly there has been a lot of blowback and threats and there are, are very valid concerns about their safety, you know, was hopeful about, uh, you know, being able to compete in the future. And then that independent commission report comes out in November. And when the IAAF bans Russia, she is effectively banned, right? right. Russian athletes can compete against each other in Russia right now. They're only barred from international competition, but it's not safe for the Stepanovs to be there. So they are in the United States. They are pleading I think is probably the best way to put it uh, to the IAAF for her to be allowed to compete. And certainly the, you know, real would be the hope, but just compete period. Right. Uh, Yulia Stepanova is now 29 years old. So um, she's probably toward the end of her career, not at the beginning. And, you know, it's hard to see this, or I know they see it, you know, from speaking with them as, you know, her being punished for uh, providing this assistance. I, I don't think it's even debatable. They're, they're, the most important whistleblowers in the history of anti-doping. Absolutely. Uh, and there are many who I've spoken with, you know, Becky Scott, who's the chair of the WADA athlete committee, uh, Dick Pound, who led the independent commission, uh, Joseph Depensier, who's the head of the Institute of national anti-doping organizations, among many others who support her, her ability to be able to return to competition, but they're not hearing anything from the IAAF. They don't even know, um, you know, if she's going to, if this is going to be a discussion. So um, it certainly does not send the best message about your value of whistleblowers and people fighting anti-doping. When you do this, your life gets thrown into upheaval. Your safety certainly is in question. Your ability to have your livelihood is in question. And, you know, they don't have much to show for it other than feeling satisfied that they did the right thing. Yeah, because you and with the message that you're sending to people who would be contemplating coming forward with their own information is is basically keep your mouth shut or, you know, you're basically ending your career. Yeah. And, and I would say, you know, as far as we know, this is somewhat of an extreme case. Right. But there are other examples. ESPN's Outside the Lines had an interview this weekend with Kara Goucher, the American distance runner who um, has come forward to make allegations against the Nike 
uh, the Nike project in Oregon and coach Alberto Salazar, those are still being investigated, but she's certainly seen, uh, seen that in her sponsorships, seen a problem there. So, you know, I don't know that she's afraid for her life here in the United States, but you know, there are concerns. I spoke to Renee Ann Shirley, who was the executive, uh, director or, uh, yeah, executive director of the Jamaican anti-doping commission. And she had revealed that in the lead up to the, the six months prior to the London Olympics, they had conducted one out of competition test, which that's not the only way that these athletes are being tested, but that's a big, that's, that's kind of the most powerful tool you have testing wise to catch doping. And she, you know, she told me she had to move somewhere else. She left JADCO. She, uh, you know, she used to do consulting work and now that doesn't come in so much, you know, it's, it's changed her life. And for everybody who does this, it does, it's just to what degree. So if anti-doping organizations want to say they value it, it's kind of time to, you know, let their actions talk for them rather than their, their PR releases. Yeah. Um, that's interesting, you know, especially when you bring up the Jamaica thing, because if you, if you follow the American athletes on Twitter, you'll see them talking about, yeah, woken up by USADA this morning at 6am and USADA press publishes the numbers. And I think like Michael Phelps and Missy Franklin, I think have already been tested five times just the, each one of them has had like five tests already this year. And that does not count the, you know, what they're going to get at, at the national trial, at the Olympic trials. And, and once they're right. in Rio, you know, it's, it's a, a pretty solid or a pretty, uh, a pretty strict effort that, that there is, but again, well, you know. and that's worth noting, um, you know, Yulia Stepanova, uh, when she left Russia, ha- her, her husband says, had to ask to be included in the IAAF testing pool, um, which he says she is. He says so far this year, she's had three urine tests and three blood tests for her biological passport. So um, if anyone has any lingering concerns about her doping, you know, she admitted to what she did. She has signed an affidavit, which I've seen that, uh, you know, she has been clean and will continue to be clean. Um, So I I think that's... (laughs) Just, I don't know, another point in her favor. I'm, I'm not sure. I think there are those concerns, but um, if, you know, as, as the IAAF is considering this, they would certainly have the information on her testing. Um, and yeah, the USADA testing, when the, when the New York Times report came out about so- Sochi doping and it included, the, you know, naming some medalists who had won while doping, you know, I spoke to Stephen Holcomb, who's a bobsledder for the U.S. And he's like, (laughs) he's like, I kid you not. I was watching myself on television talk about this when the doping control officer knocked on my door and I had to go pee in a cup. Like the irony was astounding. Yeah. They they get tested a lot. (laughs) Which, and if you talk to the the athletes who are clean, they don't have a problem with it because it's, it's the one way to ensure that they are competing clean and that, you know, hopefully it, it keeps everybody else honest too. It's just, you know, that's not necessarily the case everywhere. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, so we have uh, Friday is the decision by the IAAF. Um, do we have a time that we expect it? Obviously, they're based in uh, Switzerland, Lausanne, Switzerland. So are we expecting it to be come down morning our time, evening? What are we thinking? We don't know. And uh, I mean, this is based on a vote of of a board. So um, it's not I mean, the process of how they come to this. Uh, Roger Pielke Jr. has he's a professor and he's outlined on his blog, you know, here's the parts of the IAAF regulations that cover this, but they kind of don't cover this. So we really don't know what the process will be, how long it's going to take. We just know Friday there should be an answer. Okay. 
and then look forward to appeals and yes, people complaining and all that good stuff through real. Yes. <laughs> well, most certainly. The story will not be done on Friday. I can no. tell you that. No, it will just be one more part of it. That's right. All right. Well, Rachel, thank you very much for joining us and for giving us all this information. It's a it's a fascinating issue and, again, one that we will not be hearing the end of anytime soon. Well, thank you for having me. As always, you can download our podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and you can follow all of our Olympic coverage at usatodaysports.com. 